Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The battles of Menon Road and Polygon Wood had advanced the Allied line a couple of thousand yards, give or take. By comparison to early operations throughout the war, the fighting had been almost easy. Coming on the back of earlier battles of Messines and Pilkham Ridge, the twin blows of Menon Road and Polygon Wood had left the Germans battered and in some disorganisation. One more push and the Allies would take the final ridge before the ultimate target of this offensive would be laid out before them, Passchendaele. But it was getting late in the season. If Passchendaele was going to be taken, it would have to be before the rains came. But before they could take Passchendaele, they would have to take Brunside Ridge. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the third and final instalment of the three-episode series covering the Australian role during the Third Battle of Ypres. If you're tuning in for the first time, then can I suggest you go back and listen to the previous two episodes to get a better idea of how we got to this point. The previous battles of Menin Road and Polygon Wood had involved troops from the 1st Anzac Corps. These troops were still in place and because of the comparatively light casualties suffered, they were good to go again at Brunsine Ridge. The big excitement of this battle was the fact that the 2nd Anzac Corps was going to be joining in as well. Up to this point, whenever an Anzac Corps went into a fight, they would have other troops on their flanks, but this was going to be the first time where an Anzac Corps would have another Anzac Corps going in to fight alongside them. Four of the five Australian divisions would be fighting side by side. Now I realise that some of you don't have a military background and so all this talk of corps and divisions may be a bit confusing. You may have heard of the Australia Corps and so the 1st and 2nd Anzac Corps don't make a lot of sense. But at this point, at the end of 1917, Australian and New Zealand troops were not all in one corps. In reality, the entirety of the Australian troops were not even in the same army. The Australia Corps would not come into existence until 1918. So now we're totally confused, eh? I'll break it down for you as quickly and simply as I can. First up, when Australia first went to war, it raised one division. This division was the 1st Division, and it was the force which landed at Gallipoli. Then, due to the number of men signing up, a 2nd Division was created, and they went to Gallipoli about halfway through. After Gallipoli, there was such an overabundance of troops that it was decided to expand to 5 divisions of Australians and 1 New Zealand Division. The experienced battalions were divided up so each new battalion would have a mix of experienced blokes and a few new fellas. All up, there were 60 battalions making up 5 divisions. These five Australian and Kiwi divisions were split into two corps. First Anzac consisted of the 1st and 2nd Divisions and the New Zealand Division, while the 2nd Anzac consisted of the 4th and 5th Divisions. No, I didn't forget about the 3rd Division. They would be formed in England and would join 2nd Anzac in 1917. The Light Horse is a completely different beast and for our purposes had no part in either corps. Now remember, at this point, Australians were just another part of the overall British Army to be dispersed as the British commanders saw fit. So 1st Anzac were assigned to the British 2nd Army, while 2nd Anzac went to the British 5th Army. And finally, just to confuse everything, 
When 2nd Anzac arrived in France, the New Zealand Division was transferred from 1st Anzac to 2nd, and the 4th Division went to 1st Anzac. And that, my friends, is military organisation in a nutshell. So, what led to that diversion? Oh yeah, two corps fighting side by side. In general, during the war to this point, an Australian division would go into the line and would subsequently be replaced by another Australian division, meaning they had never really had other Australians on their flanks. There had been a few occasions when the British or other forces on their flank hadn't performed well, Bullcourt for example, which had led to difficulties. But now, not only was there an Australian division on one flank, there was a whole corps of their countrymen. It was a great comfort. Adding to the sense of confidence going into the attack at Broodside Ridge was the comparative ease of the victories at Menon Road and Polygon Wood. The creeping barrages had been near perfect. The tactics of the attacks had worked out beautifully. It really did feel like that after the disasters of 1915, 1916 and early 1917, the knobs had finally figured out how to wage war in the technical age. Limited objectives which could be taken while still in range of artillery cover to then consolidate the position and bring the guns forward before the next limited step was launched. If they could keep it up, then they could keep the Germans off balance and maybe, just maybe, before the weather set in, they could deliver a knockout blow and the war would be done. This wasn't just wishful thinking on the Allies' behalf. By the Germans' own admissions, after Polygon Wood, they were in some degree of disarray, some hardly knowing exactly where the front line was. On the 28th of September, the 30th Battalion advanced post in front of the Butte saw a group of Germans in a shell hole only a matter of metres to their front. Believing this was the advanced group of an attack, they fired an SOS flare, but the Germans threw up their hands and two officers and 63 men surrendered. They explained that they had gotten lost searching for their own unit and had taken shelter in the crater, unaware they were almost in the Australian line. Things had gone well, but Polygon Wood itself was not an important patch of ground. It was just a patch of ground on the way to the important feature of Broodside Ridge. The ridge ran almost directly north and had been in German hands since seizing it from the British during 2nd Ypres in 1915. Possession of the ridge gave the Germans perfect observation over the entire salient. It had always been the intention for 2nd Anzac Corps to make the Australian contribution to this attack. Generals Birdwood and White had thought that by this stage 1st Anzac would be just about done in, based on the experience on the Somme. But they had come through in good shape and so it was decided to leave them to make the third attack. But what to do with 2nd Anzac? It was decided that 1st Anzac and the British 5 Corps should shuffle around a little, creating a gap between the two. 2nd Anzac was slotted into this gap to the north of 1st Anzac. 2nd Anzac would be tasked with the capture of Gravenstaffel Spur on the left flank of the ridge. From here, it was felt that after the entire ridge had been secured, 2nd Anzac would then be in position for the main show, the advance on the village of Passchendaele. The date of the attack on Brunside would depend on how quickly the men of 2nd Anzac could be brought up and make their preparations. Initially, it was proposed for 6th of October, but the heads were starting to get a bit nervous in regards to the weather. Even the couple of light falls of rain they'd had over the last couple of weeks made the mud a bit of a problem, but it dried out fairly quickly and didn't hamper operations in any way. But if the rain got serious, it was likely to cause problems. The date of the advance was brought forward by two days to the 4th of October. Between 29th of September and the 1st of October, the 5th Australian Division was relieved from the positions it had captured in Polygon Wood, and the 1st, 2nd and 3rd Divisions, as well as the New Zealand Divisions, took up their positions, in that order, from south to north. On 1st of October, the 5th Battalion's old position came under intense artillery fire, and at 5.30am, three waves of German infantry were seen advancing. 
the British divisions opened up along with the southernmost Australian battalion firing into the German flank. The Germans suffered heavy casualties but managed to retake the southeastern corner of the wood. A second attack was made in the afternoon but made no progress. This was fortunate. If a substantial chunk of the wood had ended up in German hands, it would have made preparations for the advance on Brunside a bit tricky. With all systems go, after dusk on 3rd of October, the troops began to head out to the jumping off tapes. Their mood could best be described as exuberant. They all knew that for the first time ever, the two Anzac Corps were fighting side by side. They were all keen to get in and show the Pommy commanders what this could achieve. A drizzling rain began to fall as the troops moved forward, making the ground greasy but not drenched. The main impediment this would cause was to keep the dust down during the bombardment. This may seem like a good thing, but during the previous battles, the smoke and dust had played a large role in concealing the movement of troops from the German observers. By the early hours of 4th of October, the attacking divisions had squeezed up as far forward as they could. Experience had told them that it was usually the troops in the follow-up waves which would be subjected to the worst of the German counter-barrage, so they crowded the forwardmost positions, allowing the barrage to do little damage. That was a theory. But on this occasion, for reasons which will become apparent later, the German barrage didn't behave like it was supposed to. An observer wrote, quote, At about 5.20 a yellow flare went up on Brunside Ridge, instead of a white, as heretofore. It was followed by a couple more, and then sheaths of them. About seven minutes later, or less, the German barrage began to come down, battery by battery. Of course, we thought the attack had been discovered. It made one miserably anxious to hear it, but we had heard the same at Bullcourt, and learnt that our men can still attack under such a barrage. End quote. The main problem caused by this barrage was that it wasn't falling on the trenches which the Australians had just vacated. It was falling predominantly in no man's land, where the attacking troops were waiting for the whistle to go. But there was nothing for it but to find what cover they could in the shell holes to wait it out for 30 agonisingly long minutes. It is estimated that around one-seventh of the attacking force was killed or wounded while waiting for zero hour. But that was only on the 1st and 2nd Division fronts. The 3rd Division and the 7th British Division were pretty much left alone. Surely, if the attack had been discovered, the Germans would be blasting the entire position. The 25th Battalion began to have an inkling as to what was going on. From around 11pm that night, while laying next to their jumping-off tapes, they had been witnessing the movement of German troops across their front. They assumed it was just the normal relief being carried out. But it went on for hours, and when the barrage began to fall, the realisation hit home. The Germans were preparing an attack of their own. But by then it was too late to fire the SOS flares. There was only 10 minutes left before zero hour. Whatever was about to happen was going to happen, regardless of the 25th knowing that it was coming. Some began to realise that if the German barrage is still going at zero hour, they were going to have to leave the comparative safety of their shell holes and advance straight through the bombardment. Imagine that. Bad enough knowing that you're about to stand up and possibly make a decent target for a random machine gun bullet. The realisation that machine guns are the least of your immediate problems can't have been comforting. Then, at 6am, the British barrage commenced, and at the same time, the German barrage stopped. The attacking troops stood up, lit cigarettes, and moved forward. For those troops, it became immediately obvious that this barrage was not of the same intensity as that which supported the previous attacks. Some of the men actually had trouble determining whether it was the barrage or just a few of their own shells falling short. Regardless, on they went. After covering about 150 yards, the men of 1st Anzac saw, in the dim light, a line of troops rising from the shell holes right across the line. Some were a bit unsure about what was going on, but most clued on pretty quickly. 
This was the commencement of a German attack. There's only one thing to do on these occasions, get in the first blow. An Australian officer described it, quote, The men blazed at once from the shoulder. One Lewis gunner on the left centre got down at once and opened fire. The Australian lines did not stop for a moment. The Germans fired a few scattered shots and ran at once. Some of our chaps shouted, They're our own chaps, don't fire. Others responded, Mind your own bloody business. Most of the men went on shooting. End quote. Not all the German troops ran though. Some came on with bayonets fixed and a brief and brutal struggle ensued. But too many Germans had run and the Australians soon dealt with the rest. Documents captured later in the day show that the Germans had planned their attack almost along the same line as the Allied forces. Zero hour for both attacks had been set for the same time. The only difference is that the Germans planned a half hour preliminary bombardment to cease at zero hour, whereas the British gunners held their fire until zero hour. It was harsh proof that the new British practice of providing a creeping barrage to support advancing troops was superior to the previous notion of a preliminary bombardment. In front of Zonnebeek, the Germans fell back in good order under the control of NCOs. They fell back 30 to 40 yards at a time, turned and opened up with rapid fire until falling back further. Machine gunners hid in cellars and as the 25th passed them by, the Germans fired into their backs. But in doing so, they betrayed their positions to the 26th Battalion who were following up behind and the guns were soon silenced. Unlike at Pinecon Wood, the Germans inside their pillboxes stood and fought on most occasions. After dealing with the German attack, the 1st Division almost immediately came under fire from a collection of pillboxes and ruins. Every officer of the 8th Battalion's left flank company was hit. However, the division pushed on, taking pillboxes and made the first objective halfway up the ridge. The 2nd Division had a similar tough fight with pillboxes, with many garrisons refusing to surrender. But they too succeeded in reaching the first objective. During the Battle of Polygon Wood, the Germans had managed to retain control of the crest of Windmill Cabaret Ridge. Well, that now began to cause some issues. 2nd Anzac Corps' advance first had to overcome this position. Their barrage was apparently a bit thicker than that of the 1st Anzac. The 3rd Division, in its first fight on the Western Front, went forward like their more experienced sister divisions. The 43rd Battalion, in the van of the Right Hand Brigade, was first to meet the Germans. A machine gunner opened up from a pillbox while others threw grenades from the hilltop. These were all quickly sorted out and the Germans fell back. The 10th and 11th Brigades pushed forward and crested the ridge and then headed down into the valley and onto their first objective of Gravenstaffel Ridge. They took fire from a particularly stubborn pillbox but a phosphorus bomb hit the strong point and the 3rd Division attained its first objective. The Kiwis to the northern, left flank, had to make their way across a bog before they could join their Australian comrades on the final objective. This was known about in advance and so the plan called for a halt of 12 minutes to allow the New Zealanders to negotiate the obstacle. During this break, the 3rd Division consolidated their position, establishing communications with the rear and rounding up German prisoners. When the advance recommenced, the 11th Brigade, with the 42nd Battalion from Queensland leading, went forward in good order and reached the Red Line. At this point, the left flank of the Brigade took fire from a pillbox at Alma, and a gap opened up between the Brigade's centre and left. Lieutenant Dunbar of the 42nd saw the danger and led two platoons across the front of Alma and seized three pillboxes, and the centre was able to recommence its advance. For some reason, the barrage in front of the 10th Brigade continued to fall on the halt position for a full 26 minutes after the halt was due to end. The 10th had no choice but to sit and wait for it to begin to move forward. Meanwhile, they watched the New Zealanders shake themselves out to the correct spacings and head forward in good order. Then, to make matters worse for the 10th, 
the German artillery chose this moment to get back in the game and started shelling the waiting troops. What a bugger of a situation. You can't go forward because you'll be blown apart by your own artillery, but the German guns were making life difficult in their current location. And then a well-concealed machine gun added its weight of fire to increase the discomfort. I can imagine there was some colourful language being directed at the British artillery at this point. But eventually the barrage began to move forward and the poor buggers of the 10th were able to get up and get moving again and soon the entire line was on the first objective, the Red Line. Here they were supposed to stop and reorganise for the attack of the summit of Brunzone Ridge, but the Germans weren't adhering to the script and it was during this halt that some of the heaviest fighting occurred. Upon reaching the Red Line, groups of Germans were seen retreating and many Australians, with their blood well up, chased after them. Their protective barrage was still thin and many didn't realise that they were in fact advancing in front of their own artillery. On the extreme right, the 4th Battalion, mixed up with troops from the 2nd Gordon Highlanders, pushed forward and nearly reached their second objective. It seemed pretty easy. But for the centre and the left, it was not the case. Just before reaching the Red Line, as the 1st Division troops were emerging from Romulus and Remus Woods, the German artillery began to fall among them. The 3rd Division similarly came under accurate fire. Captain Trail of the 8th Battalion was the first to realise what was happening. The German guns were firing over open sights. What does that mean, you may well ask? Well, normally, artillery is directed by a forward observer calling the coordinates back to the guns. The guns would then fire on that map position. But if the targets were in direct view of the guns, they could more or less just point the gun in the general direction and fire. Thus, as the advancing troops moved, the guns could be easily manoeuvred to follow without the time lag it would normally take for the message to get from the observer to the gunner. This is not a good thing for an attacking force. It's basically sniping with big guns. But this wasn't the only problem. The top of the ridge was in places up to a quarter of a mile wide with a road running the length of the ridge for almost a mile and a half. But there was a large crater near the centre of the road and a rail cutting about half a mile to the north. These positions held numerous headquarters, artillery observation posts and dug-in pillboxes. The positions running from the crater to the rail cutting could not be outflanked as they were supported by their neighbours. But, as always seems to happen in these instances, the true leaders came to the fore, be they junior officers, NCOs, or just diggers who automatically took the reins. From just behind the crest, Lewis gunners laid down suppressive fire while rifle grenadiers helped convince the Germans to keep their heads down. The attackers would then rush forward and seize the strong points with rifles, bayonets and pistols. The main position at the crater took 20 minutes to subdue. This position was supported by about 30 Germans from a ditch to the south, but the rifle grenades forced them from their position and they were captured. The crater was then surrounded by two parties under Major Taylor and Captain Anir of the 6th Battalion and they rushed to the lip. Shooting down from the rim, Captain Anir was almost immediately killed, but the rest of the force was able to evict the defenders, many of whom retreated back to a trench behind a hedge and continued firing. But when the rifle grenades began falling on the trench and realising that all escape routes were now covered, the garrison surrendered. All except one who was bayoneted. It turned out that this was the battalion commander who chose death over capture. Meanwhile, a few hundred yards to the north, those guns firing over open sights were still causing trouble. Captain Trail and Lieutenant Hickson led some troops of the 7th and 8th battalions to the guns, which ceased firing as soon as the troops got close. But the guns were guarded by entrenched machine gunners and infantry with bombs, as well as the ever-present pillboxes. As occurred down at the crater, Lewis gunners and rifle grenadiers laid down suppressive fire while the main parties edged their way forward. They managed to get so close that German bombs were actually falling behind them. They rushed forward and routed the garrison. It turned out that this was the artillery headquarters 
and most of the defenders had been shot in the taking thereof. Lieutenant Hickson was awarded the Military Cross for his actions. His citation read, quote, For distinguished gallantry during the attack on Broonside Ridge, east of Ypres, on 4th or 10th, 17. This officer was in command of a company throughout the operation and led them with unerring skill and judgment. His calm, thoughtful action during one period of the attack undoubtedly saved many lives. Seeing his flank company held up by machine gun fire, he immediately swung a portion of his line to assist and personally went forward with his revolver, shot four of the gun team and captured the remainder of the gun, thus allowing the line to reform and advance. End quote. Lieutenant Hickson joined as a private in October 1914 and survived the war, but died on 18th of April 1920. Unfortunately, I'm unable to tell you the cause of death because all I've managed to find is his funeral notice, which only gives details of the funeral. I always find it particularly sad that blokes who survived four years of the most destructive war the world had seen up to that point died shortly thereafter. In front of the 2nd Division, the barrage had been a bit denser, but when the troops saw Germans retreating from the Red Line position, in places they pushed through their own barrage in pursuit. A few men turned the recently captured field guns around and tried to use them against their former owners. Sniper fire soon forced the Australians to take cover. At this point, observers from the 8th Battalion noticed German reinforcements rushing towards the 21st Battalion section of the line. From their position on top of the ridge, the observers were able to signal directly to the supporting artillery who dropped a barrage on the assembly area and broke up the counter-attack before it began. The German counter-attack was part of a reorganised German defensive strategy. During the Battle of the Somme in 1916, the Germans held large numbers of troops in the front line, with counter-attack immediately behind. At the Somme, this proved to be a problem as it meant that all these troops were subjected to the preparatory bombardment. As a result, they had adopted a defence in depth strategy throughout the early part of 1917. This involved maintaining a small number of troops in the front line, with the counter-attack troops further back. Thus, fewer troops were subjected to the bombardment, and those who survived could then disrupt the Allied advance, but were not expected to defeat the attack themselves. If the position was taken, the counter-attack could go in, relatively unscathed, and evict the battered remnants of the Allied attack. And it had worked pretty well for them. But after the losses at Menin Road and Polygon Wood, it became apparent to the German command that this strategy didn't work against a creeping barrage with limited hops to seize objectives, secure them, and then move on at a later date. At a meeting with his senior commanders, Ludendorff was told that with the reserves held so far back, by the time they came forward, it was too late as the attackers were now generally secure and still able to be supported by their own artillery. So, prior to the 4th of October, Ludendorff reluctantly agreed to have reserve battalions close to the line to expedite the counterattack. Under its first true test, you'd have to say the results were mixed. They hadn't managed to expel the attackers from the Red Line, but they did manage to disrupt the preparations for the next stage, although, it has to be said, not by a great deal. By the time the second hop was due, most of the Anzac and British battalions were more or less ready to go. Most of the troops who had overshot the mark had been brought back, except for some of the men of the 4th who had been mixed up with the Scots. Captain Judge advised the Colonel that he would order those men to take cover in shell holes to avoid the barrage. At ten past eight, after four minutes of intense shelling, the second stage got underway. The 1st and 2nd Divisions almost immediately crested the ridge with little opposition. The view laid out before them must have seemed unreal. Since May of 1915, the ridge line had marked the end of what the Allies could see to the east. Their part of the world at that stage was devoid of vegetation, shell blasted with all the detritus of war scattered about. By contrast, the eastern side of the ridge had seen very little destruction since it was first fought over in the early months of the war. The diggers were now presented with mostly green fields, 
with only the occasional shell hole, a light scattering of trees which still had leaves on them, and even cows grazing. Off in the distance, they could even see the spire of the church at Passchendaele. It's sad to think that those green fields would soon become the waterlogged wasteland that most people associate with the Battle of Passchendaele. Tens of thousands of men would die down there in the coming months in what most Great War veterans would say was the worst conditions of the war. But at this point, those green fields must have filled the troops with hope and optimism. To the right of the Australians, on the southern flank of the battle, the British 7th Division's second objective was the Indistair Plateau. The main Brunsone Ridge runs basically north-south, but at the Indistair Plateau it turns to the east at about 80 degrees. Possession of the plateau allowed the British to occupy the bottom of an L-shaped battlefield, which meant they could now hit the German defenders in the front of the 1st and 2nd Australian Divisions from the side, as well as German reinforcements who were moving into the battle. For the non-militarists out there, this is known as enfilade fire. There's very little a defending force can do against enfilade fire, particularly if it's coming from higher ground. The 1st and 2nd Divisions advanced down the slope. The 24th Battalion was making its way towards a hedge which the intelligence maps had identified as a German headquarters. It was indeed the HQ of the 5th Guards Grenadiers. But as they were advancing, their artillery dropped white smoke shells to indicate that the objective had been reached. The 24th had to let the HQ staff escape. Both divisions dug in on their objectives, only being troubled by snipers who took a heavy toll on officers and NCOs. In the official history, Bean states that the stretcher bearers were also sniped. I'm not doubting the great man, but that would be a bit of a departure from normal behaviour. The Germans, in fact all combatants, were pretty good at not specifically targeting stretcher bearers. One, because it was against the rules of war to do so, and two, most of the men understood that it was highly likely they would end up on a stretcher one day, and they'd be hoping that the bearers would be left alone to do their job. The toughest fighting of the second stage took place to the north of Morsled Road, on the left flank of the 2nd Division section. Leading the 7th Brigade was the 26th Battalion of Queenslanders and Tasmanians. Their objective was a line from the village of Brunside north to a rail junction. Early on in the second stage, the battalion passed through an old church cemetery and at that point they were fired on by machine guns situated in Daisy Wood, a couple of hundred yards to the front. Lieutenant MacDonald was killed and the advancing troops wavered until Captain Smith took command and got the men advancing again. But heavy fire from behind hedges and the rubble of destroyed buildings drove them back to find shelter in an old trench. The 26th had suffered such heavy casualties that a gap had opened up between the 6th and the 7th Brigades. The 26th wouldn't be able to resolve this issue without reinforcements, so a message was sent back to the 27th Battalion to send up 100 men. Two companies under Captain Gould and Lieutenant Lampard arrived shortly before 10am. Gould conducted a quick reconnaissance of the area and decided that the trench they were occupying would provide better view over the battlefield than they would have from Daisy Wood and so he ordered his men to dig in. As they dug, they kept digging out old British uniforms, with the remains of their former owners. These were the dead from the British 28th Division, who had held this trench in 1915 during the Second Battle of Ypres. Two years and many thousands of casualties later, the Allies were once again occupying the same trenches. The gap had been sealed, and Lampard's company made contact with the 6th Brigade's 41st Battalion. The 6th Brigade formed the right flank of the 3rd Division, making this the junction of 1st and 2nd Anzac Corps. The 3rd Division advanced towards Abram Heights during the second stage of their advance. This required them to cross the old German defences, and while negotiating the old barbed wire and swampy ground, the 44th and 41st Battalions were unable to keep up with the protective barrage. 
As the shelling moved beyond the German pillboxes, the machine gunners opened up and once again the pillboxes needed to be captured one by one. Two pillboxes in particular kept the battalions pinned down. It was only after Lieutenant Brenner of the 44th and Lieutenant Fraser of the 41st took each pillbox in turn that the troops were once again able to continue their advance. The 39th Battalion advance was going well until they began to receive fire from their left, from in front of the New Zealand sector. This advance stalled until a party from the 40th, which was following behind the 39th, charged the machine gun and freed the 39th, who went on to their final objective. The only problem was that this delay meant that the barrage had moved forward, and the 40th, which was to pass through the 39th and take the final objective, was unable to catch up. They were then subjected to severe fire from the Flandern 1 line. This German position lay just over the crest of the ridge. The 40th's objective was just short of the summit where the Gravenstaffel Spur crossed the Flandern line. The German trench was totally destroyed, but still they managed to pour a withering fire from 10 machine guns located in the trench and supporting pillboxes. The Tasmanians could only advance in small hops, suffering heavy losses on each hop. Something had to be done, or else the advance would either sink into the ground or all of the troops would be wiped out. Captain Ruddock saw that if he could lead a company from the left flank into the New Zealand sector, he'd have decent cover from which to lay down suppressing fire. He got his company into position and opened fire. It had the desired effect, allowing some degree of forward movement. But still, each strong point could only be taken by acts of extreme bravery by small groups and individuals. In this way, the 40th achieved its objective by shortly after 10 past 9. The Kiwis on their left also gained their objectives about the same time. By mid-morning, from north to south, all objectives have been seized, except the small dent in front of Daisy Wood, which, as I said earlier, was actually a better position than the stated objective. So we'll call that one a win as well. But obviously, this doesn't mean the battle was done. The protective barrage would continue for a further two hours, during which the men dig trenches, establish communications, and get resupplied with ammunition, food and water, relatively safe from counterattacks. A German barrage was laid down, but they were clearly in the dark as to exactly where the Anzacs were. Much of the barrage fell behind the front line, and while this made things difficult for the blokes bringing up supplies and the stretcher bearers taking wounded back, the main line was pretty comfortable. On the right flank, with the British firmly installed on the indisturbed spur, pretty much guaranteed that no attack would be possible in that area. But further to the north, some attempts were made to dislodge the Allies but all were beaten off, particularly from the position overlooking Daisy Wood. Turns out that was actually a very strong position. On the 41st Battalion's front, a group did manage to establish themselves in some old trenches about 200 yards away. From there, they were able to subject the Australians to accurate fire. According to a witness on the spot at the time, Lieutenant Skews, formerly a miner from Charters Towers, said, Ah, bugger it, we'll go out and stop this. He led a group out and worked their way towards some shell holes about 50 yards short of the Germans. Then Skews said, Damn it, we'll give it a go. Get ready to charge. He gave the signal, and as his men sprang up from their holes, shouting for all they were worth, the Germans also jumped up and ran away, pursued by Skew's men firing from the hip. When they returned to their positions, Lieutenant Butler noticed Skew's wasn't with them. He went back out and found Skew's was dead. He tried to move Skew's body into a shell hole, but was wounded in the process. Other counterattacks were launched throughout the day, but the Germans were in disarray. Remember that at 6 that morning, they thought that this was going to be a day where they were the ones doing the attacking. They never expected to be on the receiving end and to very quickly to turn from an offensive fight to a defensive fight. Troops who thought they were going to reinforce the leading battalions were now having to go in against strong positions which at the start of the day had belonged to them. At one point, while a battalion was massing for its attack, 
Observers in front of Daisy Wood called in artillery and many of the troops stood and tried to run. But mounted officers slightly further back just rounded them up and sent them in again. The Germans' resolve had obviously taken a serious hit. None of the counterattacks seriously threatened the Allied lines. So you may ask the question, why didn't the Allies keep pushing against an enemy which was obviously as shaky as they had ever been during the war? Surely now was the time to land the knockout. Unfortunately, this wasn't possible because the advance had now reached the extreme range of the supporting guns. In the 3rd Division sector, some of the shells were falling short, dangerously close to the troops. Any advance would have to be conducted without artillery cover. That could possibly risk all the gains made up to that point. And let's face it, everybody knows that in World War I, you don't advance without artillery. So all that could be done was to consolidate while the guns moved forward again and all the necessary preparation for the next phase was carried out. Brunside was probably the most important of the battles leading up to the final attack on Passchendaele. It had succeeded in shifting the Germans from one of the strongest positions in Belgium. It had rocked the confidence of the German troops and their commanders. These three battles of Menin Road, Polygon Wood and Brunside Ridge had pushed them back with ease and there seemed very little they could do to stop them. Even altering the defensive strategy by putting more troops in the front line had only resulted in those troops being overwhelmed. Their carefully laid out defence in-depth system was in disarray. In fact, most of that defensive system was now on ground held by the Allies. Quite a few senior commanders would have been sweating bullets. They needed something to turn their fortunes around. They needed help from the heavens. And they got it. The autumn rains began shortly after the victory at Brunsind. These lovely, fresh green fields the troops saw when they crested the ridge soon turned into sodden wasteland and the Allied offensive bogged down. The following battle for the village of Passchendaele would become a byword for horror, misery and a waste of lives. And we will cover that in a later episode. But for now, I think three fairly heavy episodes on World War I is enough. A great victory had been won by the Australians with the Kiwi and British brothers. The 1st Division had suffered 2,448 casualties, killed, wounded and missing. The 2nd, 2,174, while the 3rd, in its first fight on the Western Front, suffered 1,810. That's 6,432 casualties. Add to that the 1,853 New Zealanders and the 5,500 British and you get an idea of what even an easy victory cost. But despite that, the three battles we've covered led to a feeling of confidence and hope among the Allied armies, a feeling they wouldn't see again until August 1918. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast, or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it'd be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.